This is the This Is Gonna Hurt podcast with Jay Gordon Duncan. Hello friends and welcome to another episode of the This Is Gonna Hurt podcast with Jay Gordon Duncan. And if you're wondering why the J, the answer is, I am not a bagpipe player. And if that joke doesn't make any sense, I encourage you to check out episode zero, where I explain that joke, as well as the purpose of the This Is Gonna Hurt podcast, where we talk about faith, family, fitness, finances, and sometimes fun. Well, as always, friends, thank you for tuning in. I appreciate you uh, listening. I always appreciate everybody being here, and especially appreciate the response to last week's episode. I know it was a little different. It was Emma and I, uh, by the way, just the response to Emma is always great, so thank you, but it was Emma and I doing a horror movie, horror, I have a hard time saying that word, horror movie deep dive. And so, a little different than some of the things we typically do, but I appreciate everybody tuning in so well. Got really great numbers, picked up some new folks, so I want to say thank you. Um, It has been a tremendous week. Uh, This weekend, I ran uh, the Blue and Gray Half Marathon, and what's significant about that is, one, it's only 25 days since my last full marathon, so I'm very thankful to be healthy and to do those uh, in the same month period here, but the big thing is it was an actual race, racing against other runners and wow there was some big competition because of that fact you see so many in-person races have been canceled this year and a real bona fide in-person half marathon brought out some amazing runners just some super fast folks um and but this is how they did it they did it really well first of all there were five waves or five uh, corrals of 25 runners and they each started uh, separated from each other, about a 20 or 30 second spot. And uh, so there was a corral one with dots on the ground six feet apart, and you had to wear a mask in the corral. And then corral two and three, those three corrals went, and then they brought in four, five, and six. So while you're standing in line traditionally at a race, you're jammed packed in there with a bunch of people. That was not the case. There was plenty of room. And uh, so that was great. I felt safe the entire time, wore a mask. And then once the pack uh, breaks up a little bit, you take the mask off and you run. There were no open water uh, cups. There were those tiny little water bottles that you get uh, from the grocery store. So that was self-contained. There was no goo. So there was nothing hanging out like that. And it was a really, really safe race. Um, There was no, uh, like your family was, and allowed to be at the finish line because they didn't want that giant pack of people um, gathering there. <clears throat> so there were people like along the way in that last mile cheering, cheering you on, which was really nice. Um, and having said that, there were some amazingly fast runners out there. And so uh, a lot of times in a smaller race, I might start in Corral 1. That was not the case here. Um, I started uh, in Corral 3. So the first 25 fastest male, the first 25 Uh, fastest uh, women and then I was in the uh, third corral which was a mixed group and so I gotta be honest with you I thought to myself man I really want to break into that top 50 I'd like to break into that top 25 but I knew that was gonna be daunting um, because it was just some really fast folks out there in this race the blue and gray half marathon has uh, runs up what's called Fall Hill. Now, Fall Hill is known as the fastest mile in Fredericksburg. That's if you're running down it. Uphill is one mile straight uphill. And uh, so it's pretty daunting. It was around mile six or something like that. You do get to run down it, but you've got to run up it. So really great race. I finished fourth in my age group. Really wish I could have broken into that top three. Um, and I finished 38th overall, which I'm really happy with um, at the 
top of the hill, when I had run up to the top of the hill, I was in like 52nd or 53rd. And I know this because you can count the people as they pass back by you. So I was in, I was not into the top 50 yet uh, at the top of that hill. Um, that means that around mile six or seven, I was still like 52nd, 53rd, something like that. So finishing 38th, I was really happy with that. Did have someone pass me at the very end, so good for him. Um, he just had a really strong push and I couldn't match it. Um, aside from running down Fall Hill, my last mile was my fastest mile, which is what you want to happen. So I was really happy with the pace and the negative split. So a lot of fun, very safe. Um, also, before we get to today's show, um, I put a link up on Facebook. So just go to my personal Facebook account, which is facebook.com forward slash gordon.duncan. And I posted the top five episodes of this year. And by number, the most listened to episodes. So I want to share those with you. It's always a surprise to me to go back and see what they are. I never expect them. And it's fun. So maybe you can go back on the, their links on the Facebook page. I'll see if I can put them into the show notes here. But my top five episodes were this. Number five, my interview with Emma about how COVID-19 was affecting teenagers. That was right in the middle of the quarantine. Um, so she was great. You guys were great on that. So number five, how COVID-19 was affecting teenagers. Number four, my interview with Carrie Green of the Morning Mindset podcast. Carrie publishes a podcast every single day. And it's a great devotional study, very encouraging. That was great. Number three, my interview with Steve Alton, author of Meg, a novel of deep terror. That was a lot of fun. Um, if you saw the movie with Jason Statham called Meg, he wrote that book as well as a series of books and a lot of other things. That was my third most listened to episode. Number two, the search for Monica Moynan. Uh, Monica uh, was the daughter of a friend of mine in Garden, North Carolina, and she went missing and has been declared dead despite uh, they're not recovering her body. Um, and so we did an episode on that, uh, sort of my first true crime episode to some extent. Not really focused on that, really just focused on justice for Monica. And since that episode is published, by no means do we take any credit, but the uh, there has been uh, arrest been made in that case. So we're definitely praying for justice for Monica. And my number one episode, I was surprised by this. I mean, I remember the episode. It wasn't very long. Um, but it was uh, my tribute to Robbie Zacharias at his passing. And that was my by far number one listened to episode. So check those out. Um, show notes. I'll see if I can get all that into the show notes. Definitely on my Facebook page. But for today, um, Meredith, my oldest daughter, is home from VCU. And she's home for the holidays, which is wonderful. I'm so glad to have my family back together. Um, but for one, for one of her um, voice classes, she's a uh, vocal minor, she had to interview someone that was at least 20 years older than she was and ask them questions about their musical heritage and background and how music and the way you listen to music has changed. And so she interviewed me. She get, asked me questions about what like listening to music when I was a kid and my first memories of music. And then it led into a fun conversation between the two of us about how music has played a part in our family. Uh, so in this episode, she is interviewing me. Very honored that she would do that. So I hope you enjoy this. So friends, thanks so much. I hope you enjoyed the episode. A lot going on here. And we will be back soon with another episode. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Hello, my name is Meredith Duncan. I am 18 years old. Today is December 1st, 2020, and I'm speaking with Gordon Duncan, who is my dad. I'm recording this interview at my home in Spotsylvania, Virginia. Hi, my name is Gordon Duncan. I am 50 years old. Today is December 1st. And I'm speaking with Meredith Duncan, who is my daughter. And I'm recording this interview interview at my home in Spotsylvania, Virginia. 
All right, so today we're going to discuss music. Music has been really important to both of us throughout our lives, so I'm excited to be talking about it today. To start it off, what is your first memory of listening to music? What was that music and where did it come from? I think the first memory I have was my dad playing piano. And I was young, three or four, three or four year old. And my dad was playing a song, if I'm not mistaken, it's called The Entertainer. And I used to love it. And I would ask my dad to play it all the time. And I don't think I would ask for it by name, but I'd just be like, Dad, play that song. And he would play it. So since he was a piano player, I always grew up with just music around the house. Um, in our course, um, we discussed that, and it's called social music, which is music that people play and sing for one another in the home or other social settings. Um, so was your family big on this, and did you take those patterns and continue them throughout your life? I mean, definitely. My dad, my dad was always playing piano. And uh, since he was a pastor and also played piano in the church, um, he would play hymns. And we would sing all the time around the house. And I know we did that for you guys as well. That I'd play guitar and you guys would sing along. Or there were songs that would sing special for each point of view. So yeah, we definitely had music around the house all the time. And I kept it up all the way through adulthood. So what were the methods of listening to music growing up? What was uh, the methods of listening to music? Mm -hmm. um, it started out primarily with record players, but we had a reel-to-reel, -reel, and a reel-to-reel -reel was like like the inside of a cassette tape, but like these big circles. They were like <laughs> um, like four-inch circles of tape, and you would connect them together. And I remember we I had Kiss's second album, Hotter Than Hell, on reel-to-reel, -reel. but that's not how I really grew up. I grew up listening to albums in 45s and that evolved into um cassettes for me and cassettes were primarily what i listened to like when i was a teenager and then that evolved into cds and now it's evolved into digital music on the phone but growing up records were primarily the way we listened to music we had some h tapes but i didn't own any i, I owned mainly records and uh 45s right um when did you sense that the methods of listening to music were changing? Um, what new developments came about and what did you notice and utilize? Well, I, I grew, like I said, I grew up listening to albums. Um, but when I became a teenager, I started buying cassettes. And that was the first time that I went out and got music on my own. I was making my own money. And I had this thing called Columbia House Records and Tapes where you get 13 tapes for a penny. But then you had to buy eight more tapes. And I must have joined under a fake name multiple times. So I, I got 13 tapes for a penny over and over again. Of course, that means I had to buy a bunch of tapes from them. And I would carry them around in my car. But I really noticed it when right out of college, I had to buy, I got CDs. And CDs were $18. Now, the quality was better, 100% better. But I was like, well, these things are expensive. And I had to go back and buy tapes that I had. Like, I had to go back and buy my old music on CD. And I think the first CD I bought was either, I think it was Sleepless in Seattle. The, the soundtrack for that was probably, that's an odd CD for me to buy first. 
Uh, but I think that was the first one I bought. And then gradually over time, replaced my entire tape collection with CDs. And now I barely listen to CDs at all. Right. All right. Um, personally, I am a big fan of 70s and 80s music. So since you were born in 1970, what were your memories of bands that were famous during this time, like Pink Floyd, Fleetwood Mac, Queen? Um, were your peers big fans? Um, and just how prevalent were they in your daily life? Well, I was fortunate in the 70s because uh, my two brothers and I all shared the same room. So like, when I was five, David was nine and Paul was 15. And that's hard for three brothers to share a room. But so Paul was 15, 16, 17, 18 in the 70s. So everything he listened to, I listened to because it was in the same room. Um, so, I mean, the first album I ever got was a Kiss album. Right? It was Kiss Destroyer. Um, so they were huge to me. But Paul liked music beyond just Kiss. I mean, he loved Fleetwood Mac. He loved Led Zeppelin. It's a huge Steve Miller uh, fan. And Frampton Comes Alive, that double line album. I heard it over and over and over again. So I was fortunate because Paul exposed me to music that I wouldn't have been exposed to otherwise. Now, when I became a teenager, I really narrowed the music I listened to. I mean, I, I narrowed it to heavy metal. It was... And, and not just one type. It wasn't like I was only thrash metal. I listened to thrash and glam. And, 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 but if it was heavy metal, I listened to it. And definitely as a teenager, not only did I narrow my music, I narrowed, I mean, all my friends listened to that type of music. And I knew the top 40 hits. I knew what Madonna was doing and all that stuff. But I mean, I, I basically from 83 to 89 only listened <laughs> to heavy metal music. Thankful I had that foundation of 70s music, like Fleetwood Mac, Queen, and that kind of thing. Now, my brother in the late 70s started listening to the Beatles, and I did not connect with the Beatles in any way. Like, they, man, I just did not. But when I got into college, I was exposed to so much more. I mean, Public Enemy came out. I'm like, what is Public Enemy? And, and I started liking the Beatles because I was a guitar player. And even though the Beatles were geniuses, you could play all their songs on guitar. So all of a sudden, I learned, I learned like 20 different Beatles songs. And so in college, my friends weren't like narrowly just metal fans. I All of a sudden, things expanded. And then, of course, uh, you know, getting married to Amy. Amy had this broad love of, of like 50s, you know, oldies, and those classics. And so I'm fortunate enough because I can say I truly like everything. I mean, I like death metal, the country music. But man, in the 80s, it was very narrow, just metal. Only my friends only listened to heavy metal. And that was sort of the way the 80s were. The 80s were you divided yourself up by the way you use the music you listen to. <laughs> in my high school, it was like that. You say, okay, you guys are the people who like rap. You guys are like metal. You're the top 40 folks. Um, but I'm thankful that I got the time in the 70s because all the songs that you like to listen to on Channel 7 on XM Radio, I know all those songs because – Paul was playing them in the background. And yes, Fleetwood Mac has more songs than what's on the Cranberry TikTok. Like, I mean, there's such, such great music from, from uh, Fleetwood Mac. Too. That's interesting what you said about how people um, would make their friends based on, or people divided themselves up to what music they listen to. And I think in current times, I feel like it's not quite like that or quite to the extreme, but I definitely do think there is a bit of um, 
I think certain friend groups do kind of like similar music, you know? I, I can kind of see that. Yeah, I mean, uh, my good friend, uh, my good friend Vince right now, um, when I met him, all of a sudden we discovered that we liked all the same music. And I mean, mm -hmm. he likes Dream Theater and like, you know, he likes Blackwell Bryant. I mean, he likes the metal bands that aren't super popular, you know, not super common. And all of a sudden like, dude, like all of a sudden, like, and so we'll constantly text each other music. But my friend Paul Cummings is like that too. I mean, like we still text each other music to this day because we connected. This is the music we both like. Um, but it was it was kind of militant in like '86. They're like, oh, you're those metalheads, you know, like like, oh, you're those. You know. It was there's like antagonism between the music genres in the '80s, or at least in the high school I went to. All right, what was the first concert you went to, and what was that environment like? Yeah. Well, my parents wouldn't let me go to the concerts of the bands I liked. A very religious family, so heavy metal was kind of considered evil. Um, so the first concert was Amy Grant. She was a very popular uh, Christian artist. Back then it was called CCM, Contemporary Christian Music. And uh, not my style of music, but I could go to it. And I bet there was like 2,000 people in the crowd. And I loved the concert. I mean, it, I loved the energy. I mean, even though it wasn't my type of music, people loved it. People were singing. It was like everybody was together. I mean, it was a blast. It really was. And my second concert was a band called Petra, which was Christian rock music. And that was two, three, four thousand people somewhere that I don't remember, but same kind of thing, but more energy. And I, oh, I couldn't wait to go see the bands. I really, really liked, but they were fun. I mean, I love, I love the energy of a live concert. Really do. Um, every day I think about the fact that you got to see Prince in concert. So what was that like seeing the Prince live? I've got to say that Prince was probably the greatest concert I've ever been to. I mean, it's, it, first of all, he performed in the round, which he set a stage up like on top of a basketball stadium, a basketball court. And so he played in a 360 round. There were like 16, 18,000 people there. And his band's called New Power Generation, MPG, and they're all flawless. No one misses a note. And I have joked with you that, he had such command of that audience that he could say, everybody go home and burn your house down. And people would have done it. I mean, like if he said, Hey, we all went, Hey, you know, like, everybody. <laughs> but along the way he's playing and he's not playing the classics. I mean, I, I'm not hearing purple rain or little red Corvette. And we're like, where is it? And then he stopped. The band got smaller and he did a set of just six straight, you know, classics. Like everybody in the crowd knew every word. <laughs> so the concert ended and my buddy says, Hey, don't go anywhere. Cause when you go to the concert and the house lights come on, that means you leave. He said, don't go. Rumor is Chris, uh, that Prince is going to play a second concert. So we sat there, the whole venue ended, emptied and there's like 200 people in there. And we sat there maybe like an hour and they didn't tell us to leave. Security didn't tell us to leave. And I lie to you not Prince came back out and did a second concert just for the 200 people that stayed blew the doors off again it, it really was just one of the most amazing concerts probably the most amazing concert experience i've ever went to he is so well, he was so talented amazing talented. yeah um if the 2020 version of yourself explained what the state of music 
looks like now to your five-year-old self in 1975, what would it you think? Would you even be able to fathom it? It would be like explain. It would be like the Jetsons. I mean, like as a five-year-old, you're watching the Jetsons and you have the future because, I mean, I literally carry every song ever recorded in my back pocket on my phone. Mm-hmm. Like every album, I can find it on Tidal or Spotify or I can go on YouTube and find obscures. If you want to hear the music that your Uncle Jay made in, in 1995, I can find it on my phone. The five-year-old wouldn't have gotten that. But the weird thing is vinyl now outsells CDs. Vinyl is still oh, wow. around. So I, I listened to vinyl in 75, and now vinyl is what people buy. And it's, it's cool. It's got the best sound quality. If you have a good record player, your CDs are not better sound quality. If you want to just listen to me. And if you're at someone's house and all of a sudden they throw on an album, like a good vibe and album, you're like, yeah. I mean, you feel like the, you feel like the, the atmosphere changes. Um, right. And we don't listen to vinyl just because I don't have a good record player, you know? But I mean, uh, but vinyl music is, the five-year-old me would have gotten that. Now, the, what the five-year-old me would not have understood is that, hey, Gordon, Kiss is now older than your parents and still playing music. So 45 years later, they're still putting out music. And so is Black Sabbath and Ozzy Osbourne and the Rolling Stones. I mean, so many of those bands are still making music. But the mm-hmm. idea that I could carry every song ever made in my back pocket, that would have blown. It really would have been like the Jetsons. That's the only thing five-year-old me would have been compared to. Right. It was interesting what you said about um, vinyls, because I know they are kind of, I don't know if they were quite went away fully, but they are definitely becoming more prevalent in um, just pop culture. A lot of people are just aware of them and then they're sold in, they're, they're not hard to get your hands on them. Um, so I think it's really it's just more special to the listener. It's kind of like a token kind of a, because you only buy the albums that you really, really like on vinyl. No, that so, makes sense. Yeah. You, you'll have a, you have a cassette or, or you, excuse me, you have a CD. It's got like two or three songs on it. But vinyl is like, I love this, this album. Now, the only exception maybe is, um, I was listening to a, a nerdy podcast today about these Kiss fans, <laughs> and they say they buy every album of bands they love because they want to support the band. So it was Ace Freely of Kiss puts out an album, they go buy it, but they don't listen to the album. They mm-hmm. just collect it. So there's a few people, they're collectors out there, but I think you're right. I think the average vinyl listener, you only get that because you really love it. Like, uh, mm-hmm. and since vinyl has a resurgence, big albums like Queen's Greatest Hits, Guns N' Roses, Appetite for Destruction, you know, the big ones from Fleetwood Mac. I mean, the, the really huge albums of our lifetime, those vinyl sales continue on and on and on. People still buy the top 40 ever, you know, ever purchased that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, going off of the, the album thing, um, our family, we are big Taylor Swift fans. We were we were young girls growing up in the mid 2000s so it was inevitable. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, and yeah. so we the first album I ever remember buying was Taylor Swift Speak Now. 
Mm -hmm. um, the deluxe, the deluxe version from Target, because she used, she always does deals with Target that if she has a deluxe or a special album of some sort, she still releases them through Target. So we, I think she's the only artist that we still do that for. So we have all her music available on streaming, but we still go buy her albums just to support her to have them in the car and something that she started off her I think she just stopped doing this with the last couple of albums but she would do something special for the little album booklets that would come in it with the lyrics so for every song all of the lyrics would be in lowercase but every now and then a letter would be uppercase so every single song had a like secret message with it crazy so just every single song and it was something that so for example one of her songs all too well on her red album um the secret message that um came out was maple lattes and there's this famous picture of her <laughs> There's this famous picture of paparazzi picture of her with Jake Gyllenhaal getting maple lattes. Um, so that's, it alludes, she never specifically says this song was about Jake Gyllenhaal who destroyed my heart, but it could easily be inferred that it was about Jake Gyllenhaal through that. And it was only, that was only shown if you bought the album and if you bought the album booklet. Well, I mean, two things, yeah. I mean, just like when I was a kid, yeah. Um, when I bought a Kiss album, like Kiss loved them, came literally with a cardboard gun that said Kiss on it, and there were stickers in it. And so, if you wanted to buy the album, because they would give you posters and stuff like that on it. So she's doing that. And part of what I think makes a physical CD of Taylor Swift mean something to you guys is there's a ritual around it. You guys don't listen to it. Until all three of you can get together and typically mm -hmm. you would go to your rooms and you would listen to it all the way through. Right. So that ritual means something to you guys and you, you still do it. <laughs> we still do. And she's created music that you guys resonate with. You love to look for the secret stuff, but you're going to buy her physical CDs probably the rest of your life. Right. And, you know, those exclusive deluxe editions at Target where you get like three extra songs. See, I love that. If, if, a band, mm -hmm. if a band I love puts out a song, an album, and then they do a deluxe, and those three songs are so-so, I don't care. I want yeah, it's, it's to listen to the three so-so <laughs> songs. I want to listen to the to the rejects, and uh, I don't care. Like, it just mm -hmm. give me, if the band I love's got four bad songs, well, show me where I can get them, because I want to listen to them. So, yeah, mm -hmm. Those deluxe editions are fantastic. Yeah. Um, going off of Taylor Swift, um, she her career has gone from young country star to making a name for herself in country and then moving on to being the biggest pop star of 2014. And then she went, she had to reinvent herself and is now releasing music during quarantine. Um, so how do you think does her transformation and, and adaptation to the changing industry, what are your thoughts on that? And do you think that it reflects how bands 
or artists from the 70s, 80s have adapted as well? I love that question. Um, there's only one band ever that's put out the same album, every single album, and it's still good. And that's ACDC. Doesn't matter. Every ACDC album sounds the exact same, but no one cares because they write good albums. Their album came out uh, two weeks ago and was number one in like 24 countries. It sounds like every other ACDC album, and I'm like, give me more. Now, most bands can't do that, right? I mean, you just you get there's just something about ACDC, but most bands, most artists have to and want to adapt. Mm -hmm. You want to. And so, Taylor Swift, I, you've told me that story. When people doubted her ability, in one album, she wrote every single song, every single melody, every single lyric, no right. outside writers, and said, take that word. Yeah, that one, that one was her third album. She was still in country, but she had just won best album of the year for her second album at the Grammys. And that era was also the era that Kanye famously interrupted her at the MTV. So people were kind of doubting her. They're like, oh, she's just kind of little, let her like write her songs, like let her do whatever. But then when she was 19 for her third album, she was like, you know what? Let me write this entire album by myself. And she released it and she has still written all of her songs that she's released. She and, and some artists adapt and their audience doesn't go with them. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean Taylor Swift has this personal connection with her fans that people are like, I will adapt with you. I mean whatever it is. I mean uh, there's just very few artists like that. And so my topic to is kids. So 47 years, 26 albums, right? But 70s was 70s rock. I was made for you as disco. The elder was Pink Floyd. Uh, I was made for you as big hair metal. Uh, uh, Carnival Souls was grunge. Unplugged was unplugged. This is a fan that says, hey, we can write good songs no matter what the genre is, and our fans are going to hang around with us. And don't get me wrong, they wrote some stinkers. They did. But if I'm in a grunge mood, let's put on Carnival Souls and give that album. If I want to listen to some acoustic, it's unplugged. If I want some straight up 80s, I'm going with their unmasked album. I mean, because artists are like, I get bored writing the same song over and over again. Some bands have the ability to keep their fans with them. I think Taylor Swift obviously is the queen of everything, but like she, this last album, I don't even know how to categorize it. It's like folk pop. Yeah, uh, whatever. It, it was, it, there was not a big poppy single. Right. But uh, you and I joke for, for one month, it brought peace to the world in quarantine. Like, it really and did. The, like, the day it was announced, I woke up and everybody was like, What? New Taylor Swift? And everybody on Twitter, it was in the middle of COVID. Everything was still 2020, but she. Everybody was like, what? And everybody just shut up for one day and just listened and was like, wow. <laughs> yeah. And it's a good, it's a good album, right? I mean, it's, it, 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 it's good. I mean, it's not that she delivered, you know, an awful album just because it's quarantine. She wrote songs that, I mean, are fantastic. Um, so, yeah, it, it, some artists can adapt 
and their fans stay with them. But some bands are not talent, like, talented enough that when they adapt, their fans stay. Like they, the artist wants to adapt, but they may not have the ability to write a good pop song or good grunge song, and their fans go, "What is this mess?" You know. So uh, um, it happens. Uh, but the the rare band can adapt, and their fans stay with them. Uh, Taylor Swift can write any genre of music she wants. And probably just because her lyrics are so good, it's not going to matter, right? I mean, her lyrics are so good, she can put it into any genre. But if she put out a rock album, it would be fantastic. I, I would be. And she probably will one day. One day she's yeah. going to get an electric guitar out and just blow blow the speakers out. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, that's what Miley Cyrus is doing right now, right? Yeah, just, yeah, she's I, adapted. She's adapted I, well. I look. Uh, you encouraged me to listen to a new album. I listened to it on the treadmill the other day. Really? Yeah. Listen, the first three songs. It's like she listened to an, an 80s metal album. Mm-hmm. Got a big opener. Second one's a single. Third one's middle ground. Ballad. Big song. It's like she listened to the typical pattern of an 80s one. And mm-hmm. listen, I, I don't typically listen to Miley Cyrus. Those first three songs are super strong. I'd listen to them over again. Awesome. Yeah. And I think what was cool about how artists have changed and how their fans stayed with them, because Kiss is still touring, um, we got to go see Kiss um, in 2019. So I think that was a fun moment because you grew up with them, but then you got to take your kids to go see them. And Amy and I have talked about this with you guys. Whenever touring starts again, it's just going to be your Christmas. We've got to go see Taylor Swift, right? We have to. We have to. (laughs) The five of us will go. I will have to get beefed up on my lyrics. It'll be like when I, when I went to see Kiss with you guys, I sang every song. You guys sang a few. But if we went and saw Taylor Swift, you three would be crying. But, you know, every single lyric of every single song. It's just gonna it's just gonna be what we have to do when whenever touring starts again. Mm-hmm. I mean, I miss live music. I really do. Yeah. Well, thank you for this interview. I'm glad we got to do it. Um so yeah, any any last um thesis statement about how you think music has adapted and changed since the 70s? Um, It's amazing that the huge bands of the 70s are still huge. I mean, uh, Stones and and Kiss and even the Eagles. uh, I mean, those bands are still huge. And they're going to die. The more and more of them are dying off, right? When you look at the 2010, 2000 to 2010 music, I don't know how many of them are still going to be that important in 40 years. Mm-hmm. I think Taylor Swift will be. I think she can write music until the day she dies. She's this era Stevie Nicks, bigger. I mean, she can, people are going to care about her forever. Mm-hmm. But I don't know how many, I don't know if that's going to be the case. I don't know if the tw- 2000 and 2010s have put out bands that are going to be important for 40 or 50 years. I mean, right. the Stones have been touring almost 60 years. Crazy. <laughs> and when they go on tour again, they will sell out stadiums. Um, so that's it. I just, I, I'm not, I'm not pooping the music of today because I love a lot of the music today, but I just don't know if the rock icons today will have that transcendent long career as some of the seventies bands. But 
I love new music. I'm never going to hate on new music. If it's good, I'm gonna, if, if the song is good, I'll listen to it. But uh, right. I'm glad that you, between, I mean, your lack of music goes all the way back to what Mon, Mon, what Amy has listened to. You know the 50s songs. Mm-hmm. You worked at a restaurant that was all 50s songs. Mm-hmm. You know the Beatles, the 70s. You, I'm thankful that you have this broad appreciation for music that isn't just stuck at the era of when you were 13 years old. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So thank you very much. It was fun. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye.